Composer, songwriter par excellence, band leader of the legendary Squeezebox, former resident of Connecticut, current resident of Kentucky, and the co-creator of one of my favorite things in the universe. Please lift up your hands and help me welcome the one, the only, the fabulous Stephen Trask. Uh, thank you. Uh, welcome. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Welcome. 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 <laughs> welcome. Welcome again. And so that's yeah, fun. Thank too. you. Yeah. So my mic is really hot. I can hear myself scratching my face. Oh, it is. Yeah, um, it is a little hot. I didn't know if I just had the input up high on my thing, but it's uh, no, it's hot. Hmm. Hot I, mean, I could turn it down, but you can. It's not. Pe- it's not. You know, it's not peaking or anything. So. No, it's uh, it's a little. It's a little touchy, but it's as long as it's not peaking on your end, that's fine. No, it's not in the red. It's like in the yellow. Oh, that's a that's a nice zone, right? It's a hot nice mic zone. in Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> now, how long have you been in Kentucky? Um, we moved here in 2004. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, um, you were in Connecticut, right? Yeah, well, yeah, we were in Connecticut, and I still had a place in New York. And, um, and then, so I was kind of like half New York or half Connecticut by, at that point, because we had just moved to Connecticut. Oh, okay. Um, you know, all the time that we were developing Hedwig and before that, I was a New Yorker. And then we moved to Connecticut. But all my work was still in New York, and I still had a place, and um, and so uh, so we were in Connecticut, and I was in New York, and then when we moved here, I started working out in Los Angeles a lot. Oh, okay. Um, started doing a lot of LA film. Sure, because you've done a, a scad, a gigantic stack of scores. I did a gi- for... gigantic scad of films, and, <laughs> and, um, and I was really enjoying it for a while. I had one super like bad experience like um just emotionally trying that made me want to back away from major motion pictures because it was just so um dispiriting yeah it was dispiriting it was depressing it was it was anxiety provoking. It was, too, and of course, it was the wrong time because, like, I had just done this film, and I remember what I remember. You know, I, I, I like they really liked me over at Universal. I remember the president of Universal planting a kiss on my lips, you know, because she liked the music I had written so much. Like, it was like it was everything I'd, <laughs> I'd worked to get to at that point. I was like, I can't do this anymore. Oh yeah. So I guess I was a bit of a baby. Um, well, <laughs> well, maybe, or maybe you, you know, just did the thing that was right for you, which sometimes can look like the wrong move, you know, on paper. Which is right. so, so. That's diff- how long did it take you to make the decision to back away from it? Um. You know, so well, I started trying to do more indie stuff. Now, so I had some theater things going on, and I, and and it was really hard to like. It's hard to keep theater stuff going on at the same time as 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 um, as you're doing film. They're in different places, they're in different schedules, and I kind of so I was working. I did film for like a little over a decade, solidly. Yeah, and. and started trying to do more indie stuff because I thought it would be more, you'd be able to be more expressive. But what ended up happening was indie became more like, we want you to deliver a big budget sounding score and we're going to be as involved in everything you do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But um, we're not going to pay you very well. Um, and we're going to not only interfere, but we don't know what the fuck we're doing. So, um, so the interference won't even be helpful. Like at least like when you're working you were working for Universal, like if there was interference, it actually like tended to make your life easier. <laughs> sure. Like, you're like, oh, thank you for interfering. Yeah. Um, the, your knowledge you know, base is actually helping this project. Really, yeah. I mean, I was on this film, Little Fockers. I was brought in by the director. Um, uh, Jay Roach, who usually directed those films, was not available. Oh, okay. And, 
So the, and the director they brought in was someone that I'd worked with a lot. So he brought me in, replacing Randy Newman. Oh um, wow! Okay, yeah. And there was not a lot of support for replacing Randy Newman. <laughs> and um, and so that's Universal calling. Yes, yes. Shut up! <laughs> How dare you! Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of support for replacing Randy Newman, and so I had to like, and there was just this general thought that that at any moment I was going to be fired. Oh yeah, that's fine. Um, sure. And so, um, I had to kind of like, and there was this, um, and we worked for a while, and then the film went on a hiatus for a period of time while while various producers fought amongst themselves <laughs> yeah. and and different producers did competing cuts for the movie oh wow and then i was brought in a couple months later to make a presentation to all the producers from all the di- like you know um de niro had his own production everyone had their own production company yeah and i had to do a presentation of my main themes and all the stuff and how everything was going to work together and and i and i had gone home i'd left los angeles i was like i was not going to sit around and wait for this sure so i went back to kentucky and they were like okay you need to come back and they did some reshoots and then i came back and i was and i had to give this presentation it was it was um you know, it was really nerve wracking. We spent yeah. like I spent like two hours with my music editor, um, just like positioning speakers and and playing the cues and and sitting in the different chairs that, that everyone heard the same thing and that it all sounded good. And I just kept saying I, that that I kept referring to the trip as I'm flying out to Los Angeles to, to so I can get fired. <laughs> and and yeah. then. I gave my little my little song my, my little dog and pony show and um and and they loved it. Ah, okay. And and when it was done like I walked over to the offices the music offices and and and, and like people applauded. Oh, wow. And they'd heard how well it went and they said they they were like and somebody gave me a hug and they said for the last hour we were sitting here negotiating uh, trying to figure out what your uh, what to, what would the first offer for your kill fee be oh okay and a kill fee kill fee is we're firing you but here's some money go away. i see okay. okay and um and they they also it wasn't just in my head like they right you were reading fact, the room you were and, and you were like this is fact, what's vibing yeah yeah they thought this was the meeting where i flew in and got fired and they offered. They called my agent and said, "Will Stephen walk away for this?" Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and instead, I continued to work on the movie. Um, but it was just this like fight, this like three month fight amongst various parties over the summer was so, was soul crushing. And sure. It also caused me to be unavailable to do a film with a director i like a small film with a director that i really wanted to work with Mm -hmm. um because the because it went so late that i could no longer score this movie i was going to score sure because also Um, um scoring is an incredibly uh time intensive labor intensive process right yeah and you can't do two of them at the same time i mean you can but like not you know they'd moved they'd moved fockers from a july 4th release to a christmas release you can't do universal's christmas release that they're banking their whole win- winter on <laughs> sure while doing some while, while doing an indie picture right how uh how many hours a week would you say on an average big budget film is the composer uh working like 60 hours 70 hours more like 70 about 70 yeah. sure and uh, the- I, I don't think i took days off Mm-hmm. I usually, I usually showed up after breakfast, but had my dinner at my rig. So they actually gave me they gave me a room in the editing suites. Okay. So I had my studio set up there. Sure. Um, and I pretty much ate my dinner every night there, um, and um, and then went home. I don't know, like nine or ten 
And when, when things got started to get really hairy, I had a, like I would, I had a guy that would like clean up my sessions at night. Sure. Right. Because and also like, they're changing picture all the time, right? They're changing picture. And like, sometimes I'd be like, I would write something on a piano sound and I'd be like, oh, I, I know this is a, this is the woodwind part or yeah. write something in five voices and then, and then send it off in the night and say, can you make the top voice an alto flute and then have this be a bass clarinet and then I want uh, I want this to be the cellos and this is the violins and, and, right. and, then I, and then I want some and then I want like a tuba and two trombones on, on these lower voices and, yeah. and, and, and then can you get that to me and, and make it play naturally <laughs> so then I would leave and I would come back in the morning and then it would be waiting for me with everything with everything and then I would start moving you know changing my notes around sure then uh, so like it would be going around the clock right um but i would do it like seven days a week and i'd probably i don't know 10 to 12 hours a day sure and this is what you've been working towards as you said before so it must have been uh doubly distressing to have the negative feelings about something that you were so excited about attaining yeah you know and it was it was still fun i just wanted sure. to do something that was less draining you know you know nobody you know when you're working on an indie picture they're not really thinking about you're not really thinking about how will the score affect the way people in the suburbs look at the movie right 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 you're just kind of like what i missed about doing indie pictures in new york was that there was always this sense that your audience was two people you uh, uh, um your director and the editor gotcha yeah and then sometimes just sort of like thinking about your own fans and the kind of music you wanted to share with them sure or the people who are interested in your music like your or your musician friends right right um, and like, like the tone you you would think that you'd want to get across that would match the whatever you're watching exactly and and so you're just like you're making music for the for the picture and you're not and you're and you're playing to a very small group that you understand but the moment you have to start thinking like like i'm playing for eight executives and and people who are quizzed at suburban malls when they go to a screening and right you know it paid it paid nicely but i just it it i wanted the other thing but by the time i started doing indie pictures again indie picture just meant a poorly funded major movie <laughs> yeah, right exactly not exactly the escape one would wish <laughs> for yeah. yeah yeah are indie pictures really as common these days like what's the state of indie film it's is it stuff made for netflix is it um it might be stuff made for netflix i i there is an indie picture that i'm waiting for to go back into production that i had lined up before um you know before everything shut down and, and they got almost to the end of filming Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what indie film like. You know, ultimately indie film was just like it's just a way around unions, basically. Oh, okay. Now about that, that because Hed Hedvig is technically an indie film, right? New Line was an indie company at the time that you all shot it, but then they weren't a company like that when it was being released. Is that correct? No, they were no. Well, no, they were. They were well. They had already been bought by Warner Brothers. Oh, okay. Or by Tom Warner, like a long time before that. And then they started Fine Line, which was their kind of indie... Like, Label. Imprint. Little, yeah, imprint, right. To compete, you know, to compete with um, Harvey Weinstein and his, and his studio. Um, right. And, uh, um, and so they needed to do art house pictures. And then they would... They would strike a lot of deals with indie producers like um like good machine oh okay yeah or like christine vachon's killer films sure and and then they would do something called a negative pickup explain what that is too because i know i've heard it before but i think for the benefit of the listeners as well it'd be yes because you'll hear it you'll hear it in like movies about about <laughs> the entertainment business 
So, so um, a negative pickup is this. An independent film production company, not New Line or sure. any of their subsidiaries. A fully independent. A fully independent company is hired to deliver a movie and they are lent an amount of money to make that movie. Oh, okay. And so, and then payment of the loan is an in-kind payment of the finished movie. Okay. So, so it's like, um, we're going to lend you $5 million. We will take a finished version of Hedwig as payment. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And, uh, and you have to pay it. You have to pay it off in one year. Oh, I didn't. Okay. You know, so that's yeah. why like every, like these films are like, you know, like you get a bond and then there's a, so then new line financing puts out a bond and then there's interest on the bond. And then, and then that's why the films like green light as late as possible. They try to do as much before, before the green light as possible so that the clock isn't ticking and then they're racing at the end to get it all done so that they don't have to pay into another quarter of the bond. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, and then that's a negative pickup. Okay. Gotcha. And, and then fine line did not make the money. They simply lent killer films money to be used to make a movie that killer films was producing. I see. Okay. That makes more sense then. And then I've heard a lot about, um, the apathy of new line to promote the movie uh, did someone come up to you all at the premiere or at one of the festivals and uh tell you point blank that it's not the kind of movie that they wish new line would have on their on their docket um not they didn't come up to us because they couldn't be bothered to be there um oh, okay. but um but it was so while we were at sundance all of the uh, the AOL buyout of Time Warner, which is one of these like weird things like, hi, we have this company that's only worth money on paper, but while it's worth more than your company, we're going to buy you for our, for our soon-to-be-worthless stock. Right. Um, so AOL bought Time <laughs> Warner <laughs> and, um, and, and then wanted to make some changes. And so they put in, they, they got rid of Bob Shea, who had been the president of New Line, and they got rid of other people, and they put in a new guy, and that ain't good. I didn't know that part because like, I just, all I know is Bob Shea did like a lot of great things. So I'm like, yeah, Bob Shea gave John Waters the go ahead for certain things. Right. And many, many more Wes Craven maybe. And yeah. Yeah. This, he did. Yeah. He, yeah. He was, he was very, he was, he was the guy that, that kind of, that, that, that started releasing both of those um, folks movies. That's right. Yeah. Nightmare um, on Elm Street. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, but before that Hills have I, all that. Oh stuff. no, all that stuff, all that stuff. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, Bob, you know, so it was, it, it was funny because Bob kept thinking, Oh, I have to compete with the Weinsteins. But meanwhile, like his own taste led him to John Waters and, 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 and Wes Craven. And you're like, no, they need to compete with you. Like, you know what I mean? like, right. And in a way, you know, the Miramax division, uh, dimension started making new line type of films because they did scream, right. Et cetera. And yeah. I know what you did last summer, you know, which are very redolent of the old horror movies. Yeah. Dimension was, was basically a way of, of, of taking the now popular Wes Craven away from Bob Shea. It was, yeah. it, it was sort of a fucked up, uh, 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 rivalry between those two companies. Sure. Um, and, but anyway, Bob had been fired. We had three producers. Th there's three producers on the you know, that 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 you'll um, see on the on the um, uh, poster. Sure. For Hedwig. Which, and, by the way, um, is right right there. Yeah, and, <laughs> and they were all fired. Yeah. Um, um. And and the the last of them was fired at Sundance. Oh man. Michael DeLuca was fired right away. Oh, okay. And um, is that because he was first on the poster, and they were just going down the row? They were going down the poster. Um, <laughs> he was the head of production, and they just wanted to—they just wanted to get rid of him. Sure. 
Um, and then Mark Tusk was fired, and Amy Hinkles was still with the was still with the company when we were at Sundance, and we were at we're at Sundance, and we are having we're having a hit. Like, oh know, yeah, people sure, people are loving it, and you know, like it was it was funny. Like, like I'd never been to Sundance before, but like you know, you'd walk down the street and people would stop you and people would want your autograph. And it was just very, it was, I was, you know, it was, a, it was fun. And yeah, uh, it sounds, yeah. You know, we we're doing lots of press and lots of national press and, you know, Prada sent me a sweater and a jacket to wear. Fabulous. It was really nice. And, yeah. uh, um, and, uh, um, we're leaving some event. I think it was maybe a dinner that, that had been thrown. But I remember walking down that main street, at Sundance um, and Amy gets a call from the now head of New Line mm-hmm. um, to say hey Amy um, congratulations on having such a big success there with Hedwig Yeah, people love it I want you to know that despite that I still wouldn't make that movie <laughs> I do not like that movie and you're fired Wow. What an asshole. <laughs> Whoever that was on the other end of the phone. Couldn't they have waited a day or two? Apparently not. I mean, apparently, apparently that not. was part of the joy for them. And then they shoved us into then they we actually weren't we were actually a new line picture and then they moved us to fine line. Okay. So, so and that move is basic was basically a way of saying um was basically a way of saying our goal is to recoup. We don't. We're not interested in. We're not interested in having this be a thirty million dollar box office gross. Sure. We'll be fine with six. We'll, let's let's aim for six million dollars. Right. And so, um, you know, and so then they do a marketing campaign that's aimed at making six million dollars, um, with also a, a title or a property that has a tremendous amount of headwind from all the time that it was on stage and all the articles and the legend of it and everything. Yeah. They, they, they could have, they could have made it into a bigger hit than they made it. Yeah. But they sure. didn't want to. They Such a strange thing, money. isn't it? <laughs> it it's, yeah. It's just like, you know, they'll release it and they'll aim at not losing money. Sure. Um, uh, they made one huge miscalculation, which was the success of Sundance and the sort of, success of the notion of film festivals at that time it was like mm. it was very early film festival days sure you know where like everyone had a film festival now and there were lots of gay lesbian film festivals and it was like there's the austin festival and there's portland oregon and there's portland maine and everyone everyone's got a film festival and so they kept on send they were like oh this is such a festival hit let's keep sending it i, I bet we played a hundred festivals between sundance and when it came out sure so by the time it came out like everyone had seen it <laughs> fair yeah it was like oh this yeah. is a big hit at sundance it's like and then so like everyone was interested in going to see interesting movies with a queer um you know bent to them in yeah. say portland oregon if there's a portland film festival they went and they saw it at the film festival in portland <laughs> right so like right. Like we and and we gave them we gave it away like we we literally gave the movie away over the course of months and then opened and everyone's like you know I, I saw it already and then nine eleven happened and then that one, so it just went away. Yeah, that's um, right. I remember. Just, yeah, yeah. The, the playing because I saw and the they, theater. They also did a marketing that was like, let's go for all the free queer media we can get, all the free gay media we we can yeah. get. And I know John and I were like, you know, you know, get like gay media loves us but like a lot of gay audiences don't well really what was what's uh tell me a little bit more about that you know like the squeezebox culture that we that we came out of like squeezebox was was formed to be sort of the antithesis of what was the dominant nightclub culture for gay people in new york sure it was like a rock it was it was just a very different club and there wasn't anything like it at the time and for people that were interested in that kind of music and in that kind of scene it was the only thing going on right and uh um and and 
we came out of that and our aesthetic and our approach was informed by that sure and and, and also was like like the reason i was at squeeze box was because i was one of those you know i didn't i didn't like the what was the sort of mainstream gay culture at the time sure and, you know like it just i think it just follows that if you're making something to appeal to people that feel left out of mainstream gay culture um that mainstream gay culture is going to be like eh. now to get reports from like friends who are like going to oh, i went to fire island and i i i and, and i and i put on the hedwig cast album and i was blaring it and people started shouting turn that shit off from other houses gotcha gotcha <laughs> yeah <laughs> um right you know so like in our audiences in new york we're always like like we learned that in new york like 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 you're not going to fill the house with an all gay audience mm -hmm. it, it's it, and, and you're not going to fill the house with just a mainstream theater audience either it was always this weird combination of people who felt like who felt like who, who felt like the mainstream of whatever it was that they felt a part of wasn't giving them something sure but they all found it in hedwig right and it uh, did reach and uh, touch so many people from different walks of life, which I think is the key to that. So again, when you talked about their marketing strategy being only to free gay media, it was definitely uh, limited in, in approach and also kind of dismissive, really, because they're like, uh, gay movie, uh, gay press, right? We'll do that. We'll do the gay press and uh, we're done for the well, day. Yeah, the, it's dismissive and also um, uh, it was dismissive and also just like reflective of the fact that all of a sudden with the new bosses they're like you don't have any money yeah like so you better get as much free media as you can right right gotcha so, yeah um and as i said like the the the, the sort of gatekeepers of uh, uh like the, the the people that 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 wrote for queer media they were really into it but their audience was not our audience or not a hundred percent I don't want to sound homophobic. No, that's if it does in the edit, I'll cut it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not homophobic. I, I just, you know, we were not. You we just don't like gay stuff. I, 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 I don't like gay stuff. No, we were opposition to <laughs> gay culture. You you were, know, well, like, you, you were in opposition to the mainstream at the time, and now you could say yeah. that's for what, whatever mainstream. You know, I mean, yeah. what the. I mean, anyone familiar with Hedwig will understand that. I'm sure. You right. know what I mean? And I think anyone listening to this is probably more than likely familiar with it. Yeah, for the thousand people that showed up every week at Squeezebox, yeah, there was like no other club they could go to. And for all the people that didn't go to Squeezebox, they probably wouldn't be caught dead there. Like, you know what I mean? like <laughs> it was really just like, you know, that's you know that's what it, that's what it was. Everyone that loves Hedwig uh, relates to it in a different way. It's kind of a Rorschach test in a way. Um, but the central thing that is undeniable in all of those respects is the feeling of uh, being othered in some way or being outside the norm, whatever that norm might be. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, lest I tell you more about what the film or, or the play is about. <laughs> no, go ahead. I, no, 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 no. So uh, after that's all going on, how did you feel about all of that? Because it must have been a very strange not capper to the whole experience because of course the show kept running and then there was the revivals and everything but this was sort of like the pinnacle of everything something's made into a film you're making a film that you co-created all of that how was your mood around that time um you know that whole year was extremely like after sundance before it came out was actually a very it was the first time i went on um antidepressants so uh it was wow. a, it was a rough time um uh michael and i had had some personal breakthroughs just before just actually it was after the film came out we had, we had some really good personal breakthroughs but and this is michael your now husband and my now husband would but we've been together since 1985 sure but and we'll get so, into it later but some, a nice story from these times but back to what you were saying so you and michael had, had some breakthroughs some like serious breakthroughs um uh um specifically on uh, uh, um 
September eighth, two thousand one. We had, we had. I can't remember the day because I know, I know it was a Saturday before. Sure. Which was a Tuesday, Um, and so Sunday's nine ten. Yep. So, um, and uh, we were like probably in the best place when 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 those planes hit those towers. We were in the best place we'd ever been. But watching the movie like not get a put the push it should have and then try to play only to gay audiences who'd already seen it for free because it had played at every fucking film festival <laughs> it felt like you're a little mishandled sure and like somebody had taken this thing it's like and they didn't give a shit like like it's like uh, it's our it's like it's my life but like it doesn't like like you didn't right. make didn't make those people who were making those decisions they didn't lo- they didn't lose any sleep Right, um, right. It didn't impact them at right, all, and it really, it's your whole life up to this point for many, many years. Yeah, and the show was not running. Oh, okay. Um, the show had stopped running, but then, like nine eleven happened, and you know, you got other things to think about, and yeah, uh, and um, I think by that time, actually, before nine eleven, I'd already been, I'd already been um, called by. Uh, um, guys from the stone temple pilots to go and do this um john lennon tribute with them and uh uh at radio city music hall hmm. we're gonna play do uh, a revolution oh yeah you went on howard stern with them right i went on howard stern with them yeah and then we played revolution but before that we were doing it was just supposed to be a john lennon tribute but it ended up being like a um uh a, a, a fundraiser for firefighters after 9-11 um, and we went to Radio City, and um, somewhere around here, I have my badge from that night, and it has that very famous, this very famous portrait of like close up of John Lennon with his hair about this length from the seventy yeah. um, on one side, and on the other side it has your number on it, the number of your badge. And I remember they handed me my badge, and and I turned it over, and the number and and the number was nine. And I was like, "Oh, that's so that's so awesome!" They put a they put a nine on the on the on <laughs> right. the on the badge so that I, like like so that everyone would get John Lennon's lucky number. Yeah, and I said this to like one of the guys in the Sun Temple Pilots, and, and they said, "I got fifty two or whatever." Like everyone <laughs> had a different number. And it turned out I got the nine. Hey, that's and, pretty good. And I was just like, and I had, I was so I swear to God, I was so nervous leading up to this. Yeah, and. After I was like, oh, I got the nine. I'm golden. Like that's it. Like that's that to me was I'm not all that spiritual, but I was like, okay, John Lennon is watching me. Right. He's watching out for me. I got the nine, and I I was not nervous like for a second. And we did this thing, and we re- we rehearsed the shit. We played. We did two days of rehearsals to do this one song, and um, and like long days, like two long days with meal breaks, like big, yeah big days and um and it it was like the hit of the night and so we went and recorded it and released it as a single to make money for another firefighters fund and then i went out on tour with them and i very quickly forgot about the hedrick movie didn't make as much money as we thought it would because like because i'm i'm like on tour with these guys and then sleater kinney's like do you want to record a song with us on our album and i'm like well, that sounds good too, and sure, you know, and uh, and and they sent me like they were like something's missing, and they sent me um, they sent this. Actually, I'd done a I had recorded for a film, but I'd done some movies by then. But I started doing movies. I started recording some films, and you know, you just put it behind you. When I first found that stuff out, I was really surprised because obviously, I was a big fan of the film. And it being what I would consider a prestige release for a studio, uh, I was surprised to hear all that stuff. So, yeah, and also, it, oh, go ahead. It would have been a prestige release if Bob Shea had stayed there. Right. But again, it's another good lesson in, you know, life goes on no matter what. And uh, you found yourself doing a lot of cool things. So what was the first film that you scored? I remember hearing about you doing The Station Agent. And I think that was the first time I, you know, saw it like a, some article about you scoring stuff yeah the station didn't really spoil me i have to say so i did <laughs> i i did this the, this like totally wackadoo movie called c larabee which i think was originally called daughter of arabia 
mm-hmm. and it was written by this it was written by this sort of insane heiress to some oil fortune i think like the gulf and western fortune i, I wasn't supposed to i'm not i i think my contract said i couldn't talk about it but oh, okay um, so should i believe that then no and um <laughs> and this woman like this woman would write films and uh um and then she would hire people to make the movie for her and she didn't really interfere much she just mm-hmm. didn't give them much money to make the movie and she gave them a million dollars to make this movie. It was a period piece set in like nineteen, like nineteen eleven, uh, um, south of France and Morocco, and it had desert scenes with camels, and there was a battle scene, yeah. and you know, between like you know, with, with there was like a civil war, and um, and uh, there were children actors, and there were camels, and it, it was just like how you make this movie for a million dollars i have no fucking clue and they gave me they gave me money to make to make the score and i and i wrote this like arabic score um i like spent a long time like researching arabic music and learning the scales and and got i I kind of became obsessed and um and i did this score and then when i interviewed my next interview for a picture was was um the station agent and uh um and tom had heard about this crazy um like this crazy or arabic film that was being produced for like no money with all this like supposed to have it was, it was written like it should have like like um you know lawrence of arabia production values sure sure you know, uh, or at least like, an ishtar budget yeah at least an ishtar budget and um <laughs> and and um and so that was like the first like serious movie that I did, and I did it simultaneous then to doing uh, camp. Oh, okay. But camp yeah. was like it was like interstitial things because they had a lot of songs. So sure. Like so, uh, the score wasn't as wasn't as important. But coming up with a score for the station agent was important because it had a lot of room for a score, and how the score played kind of affected the way people perceived it. Sure. Um, and uh, and. And I remember, um, uh, I remember um, one of the producers saying, "Saying, you know, not quite your score saved this movie, but like that kind of a thing." Right. You know, your like, s- it was indispensable. It changed. Yeah, like yeah. people weren't really getting like that. The score, the people weren't really getting the movie. Right. And then all of a sudden, it became a hit. And I remember there was this actually like. Um, Heatometer or something in in Entertainment Weekly yeah. about about pictures going into Sundance and then what they were like after audiences started seeing them and had like this movie is hot and then everyone hated it and then ranked them all and then Station Agent was at the bottom uh-huh. of expectations going in ah. and then rose to the top. Uh, that's the way you want to have it go, and that's what, and, that, and so that was that was at Sundance two years after, two years after Hedwig. What was it like going to Sundance the second time? I mean, it was great because I had been there to only two years before and had the audience favorite movie, like we won the audience award. So, yeah. so, and I was I didn't know that there was no heat or buzz for. Um, I was buzzometer. That's what it was. Oh, okay. And, uh, that there was no buzz for station agent. I. I and then and then um, I was just like, oh, this is a really beautiful movie, and I did really good music that I can be proud of. Sure. And I actually had, um, and uh, and I just felt really confident. And people, you know, people were like, oh, you're Stephen Trask, you're here with Hedwig. But like, so people treated me really nicely, and yeah. And then the movie was really popular, and um, there was a bidding war for the movie, and and you know, so I had a lot. It was just, it was almost like a continuation of the time before. Sure, and you know, like I got free skiing passes, and you know, the free ski rentals, and and I went to a lot of parties, and I got really <laughs> drunk, and and I became really good friends with the cast. Yeah, um, and uh, um, you know, so that was just it was a blast. That's great, really and then, of course, that must have led to a lot of offers to do other films. Yeah, and I thought that, and I thought that, oh, so every film I'm, I do is just going to be successful like this. <laughs> Were you disabused of that notion? Uh, I was very quickly disabused of this notion. <laughs> and, and what it turns out, of course, is that like you can write your best music, but if if 
the film barely comes out or doesn't make doesn't make a splash it's as if you didn't write that music at all sure right like it's hard just, to get people re- to react to it if they can't see it or hear yeah. it yeah so and people people oh, blame you almost for like a movie not hitting like it's your fucking fault um, it is interesting where the blame lie or gets uh apportioned to for that sort of thing um did that did that ever impact getting the next job or were there ever any jobs that were almost going to happen and then a movie that you're associated with doesn't do well and then suddenly the offer goes away no i never had an offer go away actually what happened with it with 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 station agent and then there was this new york times article um about me as a as a score composer that stephen holden did and uh it had this very interesting effect that i i know a lot of people have had i think mike potter talked about this um uh all of a sudden i started getting offering getting offered movies for less money because everyone (laughs) assumed he doesn't need the money right right so he'll do our little film for nothing (laughs) he loves to do this kind of thing right and i was like um (laughs) no i actually need the money i've I've got like i have i've got a i've got bills and shit and like i like you know yeah i need the money so but i kept on getting offers for movies for like sometimes it would be like um you know we know you don't need the money but we can give you five thousand dollars all in (laughs) which which all in if anyone doesn't know like since we already explained negative pickup i'll just say all in means that uh you pay your agent and your manager their commissions Mm -hmm. and then you have let's say 20 percent less um so five thousand dollars becomes becomes four thousand dollars yeah and then you spend 10 weeks recording the score uh hiring musicians renting out studio space if you need to rent out studio space um uh hiring help if you need help uh if if you're gonna have charts made you pay someone to make charts uh you you spend all that money and then whatever's left that's your fee great yeah, that sounds like a wonderful deal, especially with right. the hours so, required as uh, detailed yeah, so, earlier. And, and it's like, so even if you, even if you, so even if you did it all by yourself, let's say you didn't hire anybody, right? Yeah. You just did it by yourself, and you were expected to work for ten to twelve weeks for four thousand dollars. Yeah, um, uh, that's some small amount of money. I have no idea how much money that. Is. It's not. It's, it's not. It's. Right. It's. Uh, yeah. It's not worth it's, doing it's the math. Like, I think it's, it's too like, jarring. It's, it's like thirty six hundred dollars a week or something like. I mean, three three hundred sixty dollars a week or four hundred dollars a week. Right. Right. Four hundred dollars a week times ten weeks is four thousand dollars. Oh, but that's so fine if you're living in New York. I mean, uh, that's yeah. Fine. No, you yeah. can you can live in New York and have a stu- and rent out a, st- a separate studio space and live yeah. like four hundred dollars a week. No, no, totally, and be very happy about it because you're doing right. you know your passion. But uh, <laughs> I want to get into when you started getting into music because you mentioned john lennon before and we were talking about john lennon last year because we were going to tape a show last year but then a couple things got in the way but in the meantime you showed me some of the chords to mind games and i've always been enamored of the um deceptively complex chords that you use in the songs of yours like the songs in hedwig are have really intricate chords but it's not like screaming at you hey i'm doing cute difficult things here so how about some early music memories? What are early some... music memories? Um, I remember that I liked the song 76 Trombones in the Big Parade. Is it 76? I don't know. I don't know that song. I think it's from Music Man. I remember when my parents got our first like stereo system, our first like hi-fi stereo system. And um, my dad used to sell auto parts and he would get um, coupons from like monroe shock absorbers for all the shock for like selling lots of shock absorbers yeah and would give us a catalog twice a year where we could buy things out of the catalog and one year we had enough coupons to buy a stereo system and so we bought a stereo system and my parents joined the um the the columbia record and tape club Mm. and they got um liza with a z classic yeah i think that was the first record i was obsessed with Uh uh-huh um i was very obsessed with frankie valley at a young age in the four mm-hmm. seasons you know about when frankie valley thought he was going deaf he had some strange thing going on in his ears which basically was sort of sealing his ears shut and he didn't want to tell anyone what was going on at the studio 
but he had to have the playback at like deafening volume. So the record, it's, I think it was in the late seventies. So he's going through the motions and he can barely hear anything. <laughs> they, they figured it out later. They sort of unglued his ears or whatever it was. I think the ear canal. Well, he's still going, right? He's a trooper. You know, and I liked the Beatles from a young age. I liked, um, uh, I used to go, um, I used to go and listen to, uh, uh, Louis Armstrong and Pearl Bailey records at the library. Uh-huh. That was like third grade. Um, but, you know, I, I, I liked AM radio. Sure. Um, we only had AM radio in London. We didn't have FM. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. When did that change? When I was in high school. Like, like we just couldn't, we couldn't get it. Like, the, the stations didn't, there was no FM station in town. Gotcha. Um, and then, and the stations from the stations from New Haven and Hartford didn't reach us, and the stations from New York and and and, and uh, Boston didn't reach us. So, so we just had AM radio. I remember the first time someone played me the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Dan, it was Danny Spellman played Help in third grade, and I was hooked right away. Were you already playing music yourself? Were you playing an instrument by this time? I had started to play piano. I didn't, I never practiced. And so my teacher refused to teach me anymore. Um, <laughs> and uh, I hated, like, I just hated sitting alone in, in like the other end of the house. And I didn't really like, I didn't like the classical music. Mm-hmm. Like, like all those songs for, for kids that like, you put all this effort into it and you're like, and then you finish it and you're like, but this music sucks. Like, <laughs> like, right. like the whole pedagogy for, for, teaching kids how to play music is so weird because they have to work really hard to play something that they don't like. Yeah. Uh, I, I just never got that. So I wasn't good at it. And um, so my teacher stopped teaching me, but I did find out afterwards that like that, um, that other acts that I was obsessed with happened to be the Beatles solo. Oh, Okay. So that was just what, like, you know, I loved Ringo Starr. Mm-hmm. I loved early George Harrison. I loved the early McCartney stuff and the early Lennon's. Like, I remember all that stuff. Yeah. Like, from, from the AM radio. And, and, and I loved disco in the, like, the, I got really into disco in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. What was the point where you started being interested in really learning the instruments, though? Because you had this sort of non-starter situation with the lessons, but then you picked it up on your own. You know, I was, I think I was in like eighth grade and I was visiting my friend Daniel, but he had to go do something. And his friend and his sister, Julie, um, uh, uh, played the flute and they had a piano at their house and the two of us had a jam session Mm -hmm. and, and I was just jamming on the piano and she was jamming on the flute and, and we finished and she said, you know, you're really good. You should take lessons again. You should, you should start playing piano again. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, but I refused to do classical music. I wanted to do pop music, uh, which for me meant learning how to play I Will Survive and sure. you know, like hits of the day. Yeah. Like, specifically, I Will Survive. And um, my parents looked around and they found someone who would teach me pop music. Uh, but his definition of pop music was like classics from the forties. Oh yeah. Like like crooner classics and sure. and things from Broadway shows and um uh pian- and, and uh performed in a piano lounge style. Right. Um and and he would come to my house and give me these lessons and I, like the first remember my first lesson was um I told him I liked the Beatles, so he gave me yesterday and he gave me um he gave me uh, um, the sound of silence, mm-hmm. and he and he wrote it out fake book style, um, so that it was like just the melody, and uh, and then the triad, the, the name of the triad written above F D minor, whatever. Sure, so simplified um, um, yeah, sheet music just, essentially. Just, just a single note melody, yeah, and yeah. and the the chords written written with a letter over and um and then he taught me how to like arrange it myself like like you can play that f here you can play that f there like and um but then like 
like I think the next week was um was uh, uh, um feelings. Okay. Yeah. And misty. Mm-hmm. No, ebb tide. Mm-hmm. They, they start the same, and then feel, and then and then um uh and then you know misty and other stuff and then every now and then i would say hey can i learn a piece by beethoven and he taught me he'll teach me that but it was mostly cocktail lounge learning how to play like pop classics in a cocktail lounge style sure and um and which is really the secret to the hedvig score it is the secret to the hedvig score (laughs) and um and so he um so uh and, and 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 our lessons went forever because because he would come at the end of the night and uh, he'd come at the end of his work day on a Wednesday, and that was his last lesson. Uh, he'd come to the house. My parents would would make him a dr- would, would pour him a, a, a drink. It was almost always rye in a highball glass, like a really high highball glass with a lot of water. <laughs> and he smoked uh, Paul Malls. Yeah. While he's the only person who was allowed to smoke in the house, and he, and, and and he had his like he had his like enormous cocktail. Yeah. And um, which is just rye, rye on ice, and his pack of Pall Malls, and um, and I would play, and we would talk about music theory, and then I remember the first week I didn't, um, I the, the first week that I didn't learn the pieces, I had started doing something, and then I had done this thing where um, I don't know, I was messing around, and I played a D minor, and then played. Um, uh, an E flat major chord over it, and then back to the D minor, and then, and then, like, an A seven minus the A, and then back to the D minor. Or maybe I didn't do the D minor. Maybe it was just D, E flat, uh, C sharp diminished, back to the D. I don't uh-huh. remember exactly, but I, I just did this. I was like, oh, that sounds really good. And so I worked on this, and I wrote a song. And so he came in. He said, "Do you want to play?" I said, "I said." Oh. I, I went to go do what I would normally do from from my old lessons, which is just put the music up and like try and sight read like an like a like an idiot. <laughs> I, I'm a terrible sight reader, and I started to do that. And was like, I was like, you know, the thing is, I didn't learn these songs. And he's like, well, what were you doing? And I said, well, I, I wrote something. He said, oh, well, let's hear what you wrote. And so I played him what I wrote, and he said. Well, that's really good. You know, when you move to the E flat off of the D minor, yeah. that's called the Neapolitan second. Hmm. And this here is an A major uh, uh, first inversion. And that was what began the music theory. And we actually talked through the theory of every chord change that I did. And our lessons would go for like two or three hours. Sure. Like every Wednesday night, he would come, he would probably get pretty shit-faced <laughs> smoke like half a pack of cigarettes and we would talk and play music for like two or three hours and then my recitals like we eventually we'd pick like four songs that i was really gonna learn full-on like nightclub arrangements with arpeggios and the whole thing and then um we would go on a school night to whatever cocktail lounge it was where he was playing okay and i would spot him on his break oh so really, and the cocktail lounge thing is a through line through all of this. It's stuff. a through line, and so so like and 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 all of the lounges in Connecticut that he would play at all had like like a nautical theme because we're on the coast of like <laughs> a rusty anchor or yeah you know the 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 captain's wheel or yeah mast or whatever, and so then he would take a break and I would walk up and and he would put a brandy snifter on the piano, so people could tip me yeah. And I, I was like, I would wear like a sport jacket, like it was a like it was a real recital in the tie. <laughs> my parents would get all dressed up. Oh, that's sweet. It was really, it was funny. And like, like this is my freshman year of high school. Yeah. Ten o'clock at night. Like, who's in the bar on a Wednesday night at ten o'clock? Like, <laughs> like it was just, it was just alcoholics and people that had a bad day or just drinking it off, and 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 it was, it was like a bar crowd. Yeah. And then my family all dressed up like it was a special occasion, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I play and like, and invariably like, like these totally soused like older guys would like come and like stick bills in my in my glass mm-hmm. for playing Misty or whatever. How long from then was it that you started working with a, a band? 
I, I, I first had a band in, I was asked to play keys in a band in college. So I DJed in high school. This is when you got into punk and stuff, right? Uh, yeah, I'd started getting to punk in junior high, sixth grade. I remember, I remember, you know, there was, this, there was this, the, the punk-ish stuff that was on the radio, but my uncle had been given, um, had been given two records that he was told he would just love. And one of them was um, this year's model. Oh, Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Yeah, for those and one of them was B-52s, the one that has... Um, that has uh, um, Keish Lorraine and, and... Oh, yeah, uh, Wild Planet. Wild Planet. And he had just been given them, and he's like, oh, I don't get this at all. <laughs> like, I don't know why. I don't know why. He, and he gave them to me, and I was obsessed with them. Sure. And so, um, so that was obviously, that was 79, right? Yeah. Um, and so that was junior high. And then the next year, uh, my friend David had been invited by Elliot Masters, who was who was DJing the dance and invited David to go early while they were setting up. Mm-hmm. And David said, do you want to come with me and go early? I was like, this is like the coolest thing. <laughs> Even though nobody knew who I was. And, um, and I walked into the, and I, I, I had been looking for, for music. I was reading music magazines, trying to find the, the thing that I would like. And I kept buying records and selling them or, or whatever. Sure. I thought, well, maybe I'll like sticks. And I was like, yeah, Oh my god! Like there's nothing you could do to make me like, I, like you know, I've listened to it over and over again. You know, I just don't like this. Like, like sure, I just don't. You know, like I had a weird sticks phase when it was after a breakup, and it was like, well, the best thing for me to do is get really obsessed with something. Hey, you know what? Never really got into sticks. Listen to the whole catalog. Their actual story is fascinating. The, the internecine dramas in the band, but uh, I don't listen to them much anymore. But really, for about a month or two, it was nonstop. Yeah, I went through a sticks phase too, and it was basically like I decided to be into sticks. Like it was like it, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't drawn to sticks. I just was like I, I saw their picture on the cover of some music magazines. Like hmm, maybe I'll like sticks. Like but it didn't, you know, it didn't work out. But I walked into this dance, and uh, and they were setting up, and they they hadn't yet played anything. And the first song that they played, and I was standing in the doorway, was um, "What's My Name" by The Clash. And I was at the back of the room and my, my memory, and I'm sure it's like a little off, but was like, I was pressed against the wall. Like the, like the Memorex, the guy in that Memorex commercial. Just like, oh, sure. You know, like, like pressed, like, like the way he was like pressed back by the music. And, yeah. and, and I did not move until the song was over. That changed everything for me. Well, it turned out sticks wasn't the right prescription. You needed the clash. I needed the clash. And they, <laughs> and that opened up, that opened up so much for me. And then I started DJing at the end of high school. I, I was the DJ for two years and, and I had my punk records and then the, the, the younger kids would bring me their stuff. And then I was playing all the early print stuff. Mm-hmm. Like nobody had been, nobody had been playing that at these dances, but I was playing like, I was playing, played a lot of prints and sure. yeah. Michael Jackson. What was school like for you? when around that time or in general high school like um you know i i I, it was good i mean i was like you know up until high school it was pretty like miserable yeah i think i liked it when i was a little kid and then we moved to we moved from london to waterford which is which is sort of like moving from the east village to chelsea it's not like it's not going that far but it's a different school sure and um um and actually it's more like going from the lower east side because we we went from like a very jewishy area to Mm -hmm. an area where people would say kike you know like oh sure so it was a very different um um slightly different culturally (laughs) different culturally and that's you know it's kind of when i started realizing that that i that i was queer in some way Mm-hmm. Not not exactly knowing in what way, um, and 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 that kind of like feeling of of like outsiderness like continued through junior high. Like you know, I I I got bullied a lot, and and you know, um, and I had a, I had a terrible temper because mm-hmm. uh, that that's how I'd respond to the bullying. And sure, was, you know, I, I was I was 
I was, you know, I was pretty unhappy. And, um, and then as I, I guess I, you know, so there's like the part that I really enjoyed, like where I had like these amazing friends who are like still my friends now, like yeah. people, that I, people that like I may have been talking to yesterday or last week or two weeks, like big, and I'm, and I'm being very specific. Like I'm like, I'm still in touch right. with my from high school yeah. um, on a regular basis. And, um, uh, but at the same time, like, like I felt like, like my queer identity was kind of like a ticking time bomb. Okay. Sure. Sure. Like at some point I was going to have to go off into the world and be an adult and confront that, I would probably be cast out of the world that I came from. So I think that's how queer kids feels like. Yeah. And also during that time, which is the Reagan eighties age was starting and like, you know, the Reagan administration couldn't give two shits. Like, you know, they, 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 they it was more, they thought it was more appropriate to laugh at it. Um, and we've all seen that video. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, there was the, And so, so I had, so, so I made a pact with myself at the beginning of high school that if I couldn't convert myself back to straightness or to straightness, not back to straightness, but to straightness, because mm-hmm. I, because as a little kid, I like I knew I was attracted to boys. But I just didn't know it made me. I didn't know that's what made me different, right? Sure. Um, and if I couldn't, if I couldn't convert myself to straightness, um, uh, that I would commit suicide at the end of high school. Oh wow! When did you release yourself of this pact? So. When I went into senior year, um, oh, and I had gone—I said gone to Peru before senior year and lived for two months. And I had this very traumatizing experience. I was living with a, a lovely family. Um, and they had a lot of kids, and the the, the eldest of them uh, of the kids lived at home while he was going to med school or whatever the fuck he went to. And, um, and we shared a bedroom, and I called him my brother. But the first night that he took that I was there he took me out on this like high speed tour of Lima Mm -hmm. and he showed me, Oh, this is where we go to uh, rape prostitutes. And this is where the fags hang out. And, and, and my friends and I, you know, will come down and we'll like chase the fags and we'll beat them up. And sometimes someone has a baseball bat and like, like, Jesus, you know, and like, and he showed me all the areas where they would rape women and be, and, 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 and and beat gay people. Totally yeah. Dead, right. And so I, that was like really traumatizing. And, um, and then I came back and I was just, I was in a, I was in like a genuine depression. I stopped doing my schoolwork. I stopped eating. Uh, I stopped eating and I stopped growing. Like, oh, like, wow. Like, like I've been growing reg- regularly. Um, I stopped eating. I stopped doing all of my schoolwork. My, my GPA just plummeted. Um, and I was just, I was extremely morose. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally a friend of mine like took me out at lunchtime and he was like, he was like, he was just really worried about me and, 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 um, wanted me to talk to him about what was going on with me. And, yeah. uh, and I told him that I thought I was gay or that some, it was something. Uh, and it took me a long time to figure out, like, exactly what my queer identity was. Like, it wasn't just sure. that I was gay. Um, um, and, uh, and I know that, that I know that my father will never accept this. And mm-hmm. so I'll lose him. And, I, and I'm getting to that age where I can't hide it anymore. Sure. And so I'm going to be cast out of my family. And I, and I can't take that. And, um, and he 
knew all the things to say. Um, and uh, I think he told me the story of the prodigal son, or at least as he knew it, yeah. like someone that maybe was cast out but was accepted back. I think I don't even know the story of the prodigal son. All I know is that he told me that <laughs> amidst other things. Sure, sure. Um, and, and I did start feeling better after that, but it was like, you know, it was rough, like after that. I can imagine, yeah. And I and 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 I and I and I don't think I knew like, you know, I don't think I like. I did wonder if I was a woman. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. Sure. And it's also hard to find anything out, especially at that time. But you know, if that's the first time that you'd said that to someone, it's not like you're chatting about it with a group of people, or you know, you didn't have the internet as right. a resource. So how would you know anything really? You know, how, how to define anything? Right. And now hold this thought because I need to go get my plug. Treat yourself right and head on over to patreon.com slash Craig and Friends. Look at the reward tiers, see which one jumps out at you that you desire the most, and then just go for it. Grab life by the suspenders and pull at patreon.com slash Craig and Friends.